Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. It's nice to meet you. Hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. How do you know David? I'm curious. Oh. Don't, I don't. I mean, I think I ran into you the first time when you were training at George Street. I think you were a trainer there. And yep. I had a bit of a chat with you, but I think just living in Sydney in the eastern suburbs, anyone that's involved in health and fitness probably knows you or knows of you or has bumped into you at some point. You've sort of been everywhere for a long time. Mm. Yes, I've been around for a long time. I forget like, <laughs> I mean, I started doing this when I was, yeah, I was 18 when I was working at George Street Fitness First. Wow. 18. So it wasn't through Jim Addicts Anonymous. <laughs> well, probably, possibly. Yeah. So much has happened yeah. since that time. I know. I was just saying. Yeah. I was just yeah. saying, talking to my brother the other day, just talking about the last couple of years and just how fast things seem to go these days. It's just we're, we're stimulated with, you know, social media, Netflix, the you know, twenty four hour news cycles. We've it's just it just seems like time. As the older you get the more it just seems to just fly by and you just go, God, well, it's just crazy. Honestly, this morning I said to, to my clients, I was like, if we could, I was like, sometimes I just want to pause time, pause time, give me a few more minutes, but don't, not on the clock, <laughs> pause the clock, <laughs> give me more time and then I'll be ready. Like it's just, yeah, as we get older, time just goes so quickly and and it always reminds you of how precious it is, Yeah, like really precious and death does this amazing thing to me where it makes me reflect and go, am I honoring the time I have here? Yeah. And if I'm not, well, what do I have to do? It kind of, it almost like realigns me with what my purpose is and, and um, it almost like re-anchors and it's kind of sad that it's death because it's death. So such a heavy um, circumstance, right? Like once you're gone, you're gone. And if we look at life, we have only have one life, but every day is an opportunity, right? So it's like, make, how do we make the most out of our opportunities? It's like, we'll seize the day, really. Absolutely. 100%. And I guess that's particularly topical now we've just had our announcement that we're in lockdown for another four weeks at least. Where are you based at the moment, Hattie? I'm on the Gold Coast. She snuck out. I, I escaped. No, so listen to this. Listen to this. I came up to the Gold Coast, I think it was like the second week of June. And... Um, I just at the end of that week, I was like, you know what? I don't really, I don't really have to be home. Maybe I'll stay for another week. Hmm. And if I didn't stay for that full week, literally I was, I was looking at coming home the Sunday after again. And it was Friday night. They were like, oh, Sydney's going to lockdown. And then I just had all these calls going, don't, don't even bother coming home. Hmm. So I was like, okay. And then it's just been an ongoing thing and I just haven't made it home. So I've had an extended holiday <laughs> on the Gold Coast and it has nice. been beautiful. Where <laughs> are you staying? Fun. I've been staying in in Burley. 
Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Right. So the view that I have right now is just the whole beach. So mm. I'm paying for that view, I can assure you. <laughs> if, if the listeners <laughs> oh are God, wondering. I'm doing the most expensive way possible. Yeah. It's sort of that amazing <laughs> iconic view of all the skyscrapers on the beach. That will, That's what you can see, right? <laughs> I'm that person that puts a sunrise up or 10 stories. Like my phone is just all sunrises that I'm yeah. never probably going to look at again, but I just can't let go of. I'm just like, it's selfies and sunrises and my dog <laughs> and exercise videos. Yeah. Well, it's it's, yeah. it's it's nice to have positivity with so much negativity in the world. So I really enjoy those positive feeds that people do put up because it can get a bit um, depressing sometimes when it's all doom and gloom. But so um, – yeah. In terms of introducing you to our listeners now, obviously when we spoke on the phone, I told you about the sort of discussions that we'll have primarily talking about, well, if podcasts initially started talking about aesthetic medicine, then it sort of, it broadened into wellness. We, we talk about things like meditation, we, we're looking for someone to talk about psychedelics and PTSD and all the things that are going on there. So it's sort of morphed into this multidimensional discussion. And I was talking to Jake about getting someone like yourself on that's, you know, you're a bit of a re- renaissance woman. You, d- you do a lot of stuff, right? You're well, actually, no, what you tell us, tell us all about you because <laughs> the majority of our listeners are all nurses and doctors and there are some people mm-hmm. that, that sort of move in these in your circles as well in health and fitness and it all sort of comes together. Mm-hmm. But just to orientate the listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I never know where to start because there's, so <laughs> there's so many different ways we can do this and uh, what's the starting point? Well, um, I'm the owner of the Sports Auto Project, which is an online coaching transformation business that only works with women. And I guess a background before that is I was an elite gymnast, gymnast for nine years. So I've done more training than anything else in my life, like more than school, more than study, more than socializing training. Cause I started gymnastics when I was four years old and, um, I actually was, was really good at it. And so I ventured into becoming an elite gymnast and I was training up to 32 hours a week at the age of 12. Wow. wow. So it was a lot of training and uh, it wasn't until I got to about uh, 14 years old and my priorities changed from gymnastics to boys that um, <laughs> I gave up gymnastics, but I could do every other sport under the sun. Is that why I don't have a six pack? Should I be doing 32 hours of <laughs> gymnastics every week? <laughs> and less, and less I couldn't even imagine training that many hours now. Like, <laughs> And I train, I think I train a lot. Um, you know, it was really beautiful that, you know, I'm so grateful for gymnastics because it taught me you know, to be competitive. It taught me how to apply skill, discipline, focus, um, layering of those skills to become a master. You know, the art of practice is what I often teach my girls. It's like, hey, every day is is is, um, an opportunity to practice becoming that little bit better. But it set me up for so much more than just those qualities, but also I could do any sport under the sun. So, Gymnasts uh, are very good at weight training. They're very good at um, movement. And so it was actually when I was 17 that I was introduced to weight training from a bouncer um, (laughs) when I used to go out underage um, into weight training. But I also suffer from anorexia, which is really interesting because I think the statistics on gymnasts having anorexia is something like, it's like 71%, super, super high. I didn't realize that. And it's interesting because I, I... I remember watching the news once I was in high school and I saw um, this lady and she was anorexic and I said to myself, oh, I could never do that. I love food. I I think it was about a year later I was anorexic. I was diagnosed with anorexia. But it wasn't, you know, it it started with depression. It started with grieving. It started with not knowing how to handle death. Mm. Um, I had a, a, a... 
essentially a freak accident happened uh, for the friend of mine and and it really I didn't really know how to handle it and that spiraled into um wanting to control everything because I felt like oh life is out of control life could be taken away from us so quickly I'm gonna I'm actually gonna make the most out of my, out of life that was like my that was my internal dialogue it was like how do I control everything how do I get good grades how do I change my physique and at that time I didn't think there was anything wrong with me but for some reason I decided yeah I'm gonna work on my nutrition and, and work on my um work on my body with absolute no education in fact my education was your Marie Claire magazines and your <laughs> you know w- women's day or whatever it is um you know magazines that young girls had access to and I was learning how to essentially have an eating disorder by reading those those magazines um you know, obviously at that time I didn't realize, but as I've been older, I was like, hmm, I got those practices from stories I read, <clears throat> you know, so that kind of spiraled me into a really bad path. I didn't finish school. I had to be hospitalized and it was actually in hospital that I had a pivoting moment where I was like, oh my God, is this life? Is this where I'm heading? Someone telling me what to do when I have to eat, can't see my family, I don't like being told what to do unless I've asked for permission. And uh, so it didn't really sit with me. Um, But I also recognized there was women around me who had been suffering for years, like in and out of relapse for years and years and years. And I thought, oh, my God, how do I help these women? There's there's something missing in, in the health and fitness that women are suffering here and I'm also one of them. Yeah. How do I be the change I wish to see? Yeah. I was like, all right, if I want to be the change I wish to see, I got to do that really uncomfortable thing where I got to start to to recover, and that was you know easily said than done, um, but I did it. I got there. My mum put me into my PT course when I was seventeen, so I just come out of hospital, and two days after I turned eighteen, started working at George Street Fitness first and mm-hmm. built my own business and started working with anyone and everyone who <laughs> would want to work with me at the time when I was eighteen, um, and then it wasn't until I really turned my, you know, saw oh my god, I really want to take my business to another level and um, I created the Sports Water Project, which is my online transformation um, company. I'm also a WBFF uh, pro. I'm, I was the 2016 World Fitness Champion, the Miss North America Champion, and uh, I'm getting ready for in my next show this coming this uh, October. So wow. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's a bit of background about me. <laughs> You've done a bit of everything and we'll, we'll talk about your um – competitions and, and sort of bodybuilding in a minute, but you sort of touched on the anorexia and we're going to leave this to later in the conversation, but since you brought it up, are you comfortable with us asking you a few more questions about it? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe let's just rewind a little bit and get an understanding of what anorexia is um, because you've got anorexia, you've got bulimia, you've got, you know, all sort of, I don't think it's easy to, and correct me if I'm wrong, just put it in a, in a specific box. So can you just explain to us what anorexia is, sort of how it manifested to you. You manifested for you. You said you were sort of reading things in magazines. So what actually goes on in, in your brain and, and what actually happens, just to give us an understanding? Yeah, so we often see anorexia or we view anorexia as a body image um, or body dysmorphia. But the body only does what the brain tells us what tells it to do. So it's a mindset thing. It's all about the mindset. And um, my anorexia stemmed from depression. Uh, like I said, I think it was grieving. I didn't know how to handle death. It was mm-hmm. my first experience of death. Um, and it started with wanting to control everything because life just like that could be taken away from me. So I thought oh, my initial 
thought was how do I make the most out of life? But it was more like how do I control everything? Mm -hmm. And the perfectionist or the high standard or wanting to be the best, which is helpful in times of our life. Like we, we have these parts of us that help us to achieve, but they're often detrimental when it's the only one running the show and it was detrimental to me. So um, it started with depression, started with grieving, started with wanting to control. And like I said, the, the body only does what the mind wants it to do. And so, you know, I started trying to control how much time I trained. If I trained a little bit less than the day before, I had to train more. So I kind of couldn't do less than the day before. I started to just shorten, shorten, shorten my food. Um, and it was that I was not deserving of. So it came back to a bit of self-worth. And something I didn't touch on was I used to be badly bullied when I was in high school, mm. in primary school, really badly bullied. And um, I essentially adopted those bully, um, those bully personalities of myself. So when I was vulnerable, when I was feeling like I had to control everything and, um, you know, I adopted, oh, you don't deserve that. If I didn't get a good enough grade, oh, you don't deserve to eat. Mm. And it was a deserving mentality that kind of went through. And then it became a body image thing. Right. It actually, yeah, for, for me, it, it, the, it wasn't the body image thing in the beginning. It was all about control and deserving. But then there was an addiction to controlling the way I looked. Right. So... Um, and that was a tricky part. And, uh, I was very good at being anorexic, which is a terrible thing to say. Um, but later on when I started feeding became bulimic. Right. And what's, the, dif- then what's I realized the difference? I also enjoyed food, but what's- I wanted to control how much food I ate, but sometimes I was out of control. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Can I ask, um, how were you diagnosed? Did you have insight? You knew you had a problem or not? And, and what led you to going to hospital eventually? I knew I had a problem when I couldn't stop. And I remember I'd be running and running and crying and running and crying and running at the same time. And I'd be hiding from my mum. Mm. So as soon as I'd hear my mum go for a walk in the morning, I knew that was my time to sneak out and run as hard and as fast as I could. Mm. So I could get more distance in because mum was telling me I only had this amount of time to, to walk because she was trying to control me mm. and I, that wasn't sitting well. So I wasn't allowed to do, like I said, less than I was did the week day before, but I was also fucking exhausted. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I would come back purple and she'd look at me and go, what have you been doing? And it'd be this argument between my mum and I. Um, and my mum was like, you've got a problem. I'm like, no, I don't. And it was this argument because I was like, I didn't want to be found out. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I had a problem. And um, it was really difficult because I felt like I adopted a lot of the personality traits that I didn't like in other people, which was I lied to everyone all the time because I wanted to be left alone. Yeah. I was manipulative so I could do what I need to do to, to get to, to feed my eating disorder. Um, and I lost a lot of friends. It was really hard on my friends at school. Um, obviously I didn't, like I said, I didn't finish school. The catalyst for going into hospital, um, you know, my grandfather at the time had just recovered from pancreatic cancer and Mm. he was meant to go away on holiday with my mum and their family my mum said I can't go I can't leave you and I remember thinking oh my god you are so selfish Hattie what are you doing your mum like I felt I was like oh my god I'm stopping this family holiday which they've been working towards and I'm like he's just recovered from cancer and I said mum I will only go to hospital if you go look after your dad if you go on that holiday Mm -hmm. so that you know I'm safe and that was 
the reason I went because I was like, I'm so sick of being so selfish. And um, so I got taken to hospital and um, the next day I actually ended up in emergency hospital because um, when when some anorexics start feeding, they go hypoglycemic. Yeah. And so I wasn't used to so much food. And the next day I got up and I just completely dropped the floor and then I woke up in hospital. And so I had to be in emergency hospital for a week. Yeah, it's called refeeding um, syndrome. It's dangerous. So it's mm. got to be managed properly under medical mm. care when you start eating again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I often pr- I praise my body for what it is now. And I don't know, actually, if I would have the same love and appreciation for my body without that period of my life. Because now I've seen far out the mind, the mind and the body. What an amazing machine that we get to use you know and play with mm-hmm. and and move around in and um i often reflect back to where i was then and to where i'm now i'm like man what a what night and day mm. so. can i ask um you know with your background in in gymnastics and and whatever you must have had a, an amazing physique pretty much from the age of four i think <laughs> you said so were you, were you kind of happy with your body at the time like you know you must have looked pretty athletic and pretty strong i guess I, I laugh because I was such a muscly child. I had a six-pack. I had delts, <laughs> little glutes, you know. I had to. I was training 32 hours a week. I was, an, I was a rock. I was a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, terrible eating habits, though. Didn't like vegetables. I was, I don't know if it's just a child thing or a gymnastics thing. I had a really bad eating habits. Mm-hmm. Um, loved food. Ate a lot. Just not good quality. Yeah. And um, I used to hide my, my vegetables under the carpet um but yeah so i you know it's really uh, i remember just loving that i could do so many things as a child Mm -hmm. it wasn't and when i was in high school and i obviously hit puberty um you wouldn't believe it but i had big boobs Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was always a size eight i was pretty much as much as i weigh i'm 59 kilos now i've weighed 59 kilos when i was in high school and i never looked at my body and thought i was fat i actually thought like i was the sexiest thing ever i was like Mm -hmm. you know with all the boys and it wasn't till just suddenly i decided oh yeah i want to you know what i'm gonna look i was gonna look after myself Mm -hmm. that i went the opposite way um but I really did struggle actually when I first started weight training, gaining muscle. Yeah. Because when I was young, when I was like 12 years old, uh, my sister was a little bit older and, and uh, she didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know what she was saying. But I remember she, she used to say to me, ew, yuck, you look like a boy. Mm. Ew, yuck, you look like a boy. And I'd be like, no, I don't. And then it wasn't until um, I had anorexia, it was like my mind could throw back to anything, any memory like even my coaches would be like, I remember one of my coaches said to me, you're going to be so fat when you're older. Mm. And I was like, no, I'm not. Like at the time of the child, I was like, what are you talking about? And, um, and my mind could cast back to pretty much any comments someone had made to me that at the time didn't affect me, yeah. but I could bring it up. And it, and it was like, it was like I was an investigator of my own um, thoughts to go, yeah, you are fat. So this is why you can't do that thing. Mm. Um, and when I started weight training, it was like, oh my God, am I becoming too masculine? Do I look like a boy now? You know, and I noticed like my, i obviously I lost, um, tissue in my breasts. Um, and I remember like <laughs> boys in high school being like, what happened to your boobs? <laughs> <Where'd they go?" laughs> um, still haven't found them. Um, <laughs> but it was just really interesting how my, bo- my brain would go back into finding, um, 
finding uh, cues or clues, sorry, to support why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And even, um, you know, my partners at the time, again, they probably didn't know what they were doing or the effect of what they said is like, oh, you look like the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Oh, thunder thighs. And I was still, while I was out of hospital and I was training and all this stuff, I still hadn't fully recovered from all of the eating disorder thoughts that would show up. While I wasn't, I didn't look like I had an eating disorder, I still had body dysmorphia. And I think it's the body dysmorphia that stays around for a lot longer than just the actions and behaviors. And I think, you know, a lot of women without having an eating disorder have body dysmorphia. Yeah. And it's a hard one to wrestle with working with women, mm. um, unclawing the, the unhealthy relationship that we seem to have with food in our bodies. Right. So yeah. that was the, while I was physically recovered, physically, mentally, you know, there was things that stayed around and I had to be really careful not to relapse, mm. um, you know, especially as I started competing. Yeah. yeah. I, I have so many questions for you, and but I'm conscious of not wanting to harp on this too much, but it's just so fascinating. And I think that this sort of body dysmorphia issue can manifest itself in, in, you know, in a plethora of different ways. You know, we see it in our industry with people going over the top with like over the top fillers or people that get ridiculous sized boob implants or, you know, it's never enough. You know, we're, we're constantly comparing ourselves to what we think we need to be. And it's, you know, you see it in people that have drug addictions, alcohol addictions, work addictions. It becomes the, all these sort of symptoms that you describe, lying, you know, not being real with yourself, um, you know, wanting to be in control of everything. And it just seems to touch, touch so many different people in so many different ways, whether they're from your industry or our industry, it seems to, it seems to just becoming more and more prevalent. And especially now with, you know, we've had surgeons on here talking about the selfies and people taking photos of themselves from thousands of different angles and analyzing themselves to the nth degree and then comparing themselves to people that aren't even real or people yeah. that have run themselves suits. It's, it's just crazy. So how, how no, do you, the filters, yeah. the filters. I can't even use the filters. My entire face changes. I'm like, yeah. if someone met me, they'd be like, that's not you. I just can't. It's I a good thing. Please don't be real. Be oh. authentic. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> when I ask you, um, the relationship with your mum, how, how did you repair that? And how, how did you go about, and it must've been really hard for her too, seeing a child who obviously you love and you do anything for, how, how did you repair that relationship with her? And, you know, does she still worry about you? Is there still a chance of, of relapse? Because it seems like once you're an addict, there's always the chance of going back to that dark place. How do you manage that? You know, I laugh. I laugh. I was like, oh, I could never be anorexic again. That was so much hard work. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it goes back to the mind. The mind is the most powerful thing. Um, The mind is the reason I was there. But in terms of the repairing system, you know, I was really lucky that my entire family was so supportive. And I vividly remember being in my kitchen and my mum had to bring my brother and my sister and my dad together and be like, you know, Hattie's really sick. And I remember just screaming like I used to, my mom used to take me down to the, the, um, down to the water and I'd sit in the car and I would scream and scream and scream because in a way I felt helpless to this thing that I couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. But I also was too scared to do anything different. And my sister, my beautiful sister, um, she used to drive me when I became an outpatient in hospital, she used to drive me from Roseville Chase to Ashfield. Wow, that's a lot. Every way. morning before school. 
Jeez. And then she had to go to school in the northern beaches. So I was really lucky. I had a, a really supportive family. My It was tough on my brother. He was younger than me. He was in high school. He kind of didn't. And a lot of people were talking about it at school, like, oh, my God, your sister has anorexia. Mm. And he just, he he didn't really say anything. He was just there for me. And my parents, like my mom, she's actually, she's my rock. She's she's one of my best friends. Um, our relationship is incredible. Um, unfortunately, things like, like I said, death and illness, it brings people together. And my family is just, we are just so supportive of each other. Um, I think she's just been, she's so proud of me. It was a little rocky. Like we had a lot of fights. Obviously, um, she would watch me like a hawk and uh, I was aware of that. And we had a lot of fights, but, you know, it's all about the repair system and we repaired it all the time. And and, um, she was just patient with me. My whole family has been patient with me. And, um, you know, it's so important to have a support network. And the thing about anorexia is that, the person who is suffering has to want to get better mm-hmm. in order to get better. I wanted to get better, even though I knew it was going to be tough. I wanted to be something more than what I was because I knew that, well, I didn't want, to, I, I couldn't live a life with everyone telling me what to do for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to be trapped in hospital. Yeah. So even now, like when I first started competing, they were pretty, they were kind of like, oh, you're going into restricted eating. And, <laughs> and I even know, and even myself, I was like, the first time I started competing, you know, I did what I thought was right and it was cutting out food groups, cutting out fruit again. And I was like, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh, this is cool. Mm. Yeah. But then I recognized, hold on, this is not the path I want to go down again. And so I learned how to do it better. So I learned tools like tracking my macros where I would look at food as all kinds of food were okay. I just measure everything and make it fit. And that was a really big turning moment in terms of changing my relationship with food actually because like I said there was a lot of relapses and in particular with bulimia that was the hardest one to to shake because it's easy to hide bulimia I was gonna ask um did anyone sort of flag with you maybe your doctors or, or your parents that the career that you immediately jumped into could be quite a dangerous career for someone who's just been in hospital with anorexia because you know no. it's all about body and eating again no no one did no Right. Um, the, the question was more around competing. Okay. Um, and like I said, I was still really self-aware that I was like, I recognized that I still had a lot of work to do. So I continued to work with psychologists. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, but I really didn't come good till I was like 22. Yeah. And every year after that was like a layer unpeeled and it was like, it just got better and better and better till, you know, I'm in this position now at 32, 10 years later yeah. that I, that I have no issues with food. And, and I, like I said, I look at my body and I think, oh my God, I, I thank you. I mm. thank you so much for everything that you have done, everything that you were doing and everything that you're going to continue to do for me, you know, for as long as I can. Yeah. And um, I hope you don't mind, we're probably going to uh, share that photo you've got on your Instagram when we, when we go live with this, um, which is, it's pretty, it's pretty confronting. I mean, I saw you, um, obviously I know what you look like. You can look at all your other amazing photos on your social media and you see this, which is almost like an unrecognizable person to a certain extent. What were you, what goes through your head when you, when you're sort of in, in the depths of this disorder and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, like, how do you, how do you cope with that? Like, how do you sort of processing how you look? Is it difficult to admit there's an issue are you sort of looking through things through like rose-colored lenses or is it is the reality still Mm. there but you're just sort of powerless to overcome it without that as you said you know the support the support network and and the professional help 
it was never enough. Right. The enough, good enough, worthy enough. It was that. And so while I recognized, like I said, what I was doing was wrong, the part that wasn't enough was stronger than I know that what I'm doing is wrong. And something I'm really grateful um, that I did throughout the process of having an eating disorder was that I didn't associate it with being me. I was like, oh, my God, I've got this thing. I've got these voices. And I said, Mom, I think I've got schizophrenia. Mm. I, th- I, I was like, it was so who I was at that time was so different to who I was before it that I was like, am I, do I have a, um, a personality disorder? Mm. So I called it fed F E D fucking eating disorder. And my <laughs> sister and my mum would call it fed and we call ourselves the three amigos <laughs> and like, God, they're so beautiful. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that I could, like I said, disassociate that from myself because it made it so much easier over time in the healing process to go, oh, my God, my fucking, like, oh, it's my fucking eating disorder and just be able to go, which one's my thought and which one's the eating disorder thought. Yeah. And over time I could start to separate them. And um, because in the beginning I really couldn't. It just it overtook everything. Um, I used to do the most bizarre little things, you know, and I, to the point where, and I would clean the house silly, of course, <laughs> but there was a point where I couldn't walk up my stairs anymore to the back to my back room and I had to sleep in the office on the floor. Wow, because you were you know, so weak. I, I'd shuffle along like couldn't. Wow. I was just, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, looking at myself, it was just never enough. It was no matter what anyone said to me, I, I would look at them with dagger eyes and, and say, you have no idea, you don't know what you're talking about, you know. So um, it wasn't really, it wasn't until I went to hospital that I looked around and I was like, oh, my God, this is this there's an issue here. And it was more like, I'm strong enough to suffer, but these girls aren't. How do I help them? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that was the that was the big catalyst for change. Brilliant. So let's talk about uh, sort of turning over a yeah, new leaf. Let's and, talk about the positive stuff and, and the good stuff. <laughs> so fill us in. You sort of told us that you, you started around the age of 18, became a PT, started working Central Sydney, but how did you propel yourself to, you know, competition standard, world standard? You know, that's pretty, pretty impressive. So tell us about that journey. Yeah, so I, I started working as a PT when I was 18 years old and I was really lucky I had amazing mentors in my life at that time. And one of those amazing mentors, uh, her name was Nadia Norman, she um, she started doing physique shows and I think I was 21 and I was like watching this woman's physique just change mm. like crazy and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, my God, you'd be really good at this. You should do a show. It's in like eight weeks. <laughs> and lucky enough, I, you know, through gymnastics and just through weight training, um, I'd built a, a decent foundation. And in eight weeks' time, I did my first ever show. And I came second. And two weeks later, that qual- qualified me for the nationals. So in two weeks' time, I went for the nationals and then I won the nationals. And then it qualified me for the internationals. And then I ended up winning the short category, but then coming second overall. And that was like my that was like my introduction to what fitness modeling was on the most amateur level. Like everything I did was amateur at that time. And that's where I really had to wrestle with, uh, you know, the the food side of things. Um, And then I took a year off and I went traveling and I came and I saw all these girls getting on stage and it was really getting popular. I'm like, man, I've got to get back in there. Mm. 
and so I came back in in so that was 2011 my first year 2012 I went away 2013 I came back and I ended up winning all the shows went overseas won my first international show and then 2014 uh the WBFF came to Australia and that's like WBFF is one of the biggest um I don't want to call it bodybuilding because they don't call themselves bodybuilders, but they called WBFF World Beauty Fashion Fitness. So essentially, it is a beauty pageant with muscle, right. and it is it is highly regarded as some of the most beautiful women, incredible physiques, and it's worldwide. So I did the WBFF show and won my pro card, and in that that was the year that I turned pro. And in that same year, I was introduced to strength training by a guy called Sebastian Orib. Oh yeah, Australian I know. About it. I used to work with his brother. Yeah, yeah I used to work with yeah. um, with Cameron. Yeah, okay, there you go. Yes, so I started working with Sebastian Oreb, and um, he introduced me to strength training. So I'd always done weight training. I'd always done weights, obviously, to get in shape for the shows. But it was strength training in particular that was a game changer in my training. In the way of going, it's actually not about the way I look, but how do I perform. And I really took on and adopted those the squat, bench, deadlift kind of um, patterns and took them into my training and just got crazy strong and got myself ready for becoming a pro athlete. Like things had to change. I couldn't do it at an amateur level anymore. Um, I also started working with another coach called Lane Norton and um, he introduced me to tracking macros. So essentially he was like the king of flexible dieting at that time. Um, super knowledgeable guy and those two things together combined were actually like a pivoting moment in terms of my overall being and how I looked at the body. I was no longer just a fitness model. I was an athlete Mm. and I adopted an athlete mindset, which was work, rest, recover, uh, work, recover, um, nutrition. I was like, how do I feed this, this body to do what I want it to do, to perform the way I want it to perform but also to become world class. Mm-hmm. And two years later, um, it was actually the next year I, I got fourth in the world, which put me on um, put me on show because I was the first Australian to get top five. Wow! And then the year after, I won Miss North America, and that same year I won the the, the world titles, and that really uh, got my name out there. I I uh, beat the four time world champion Andre Bazir, who was my idol, still is one of my idols. Um, and so that was a really, really big moment for me. And, you know, I've been training, oh God, I've been training for 15 years now and I love it more than ever because there's just so much experience there's just so much more knowledge and also so much more trust in the process. And you know, competing is not healthy in any way, but I try and do it the healthiest way. And um, there's so much empowerment with looking at the body and going, how can I, how can I push these boundaries not in the way of punishment, but in the way of like love, like mm. self-love. What do I know that I could actually, what potential do I have? Like potential requires hard work for all of us, but what is my potential and how do I reach that? And like I said, strength training in the beginning and, and looking at food differently, big game changes. Can I ask for the uninitiated, including myself, what's the difference between physique training, body building? I think you said there was a, a slight difference and also the bikini sort of modeling is there a difference or is it all much of a muchness well essentially if you're working on your body you're a bodybuilder this is what i say to my girls if you're 
if you're working on your body, you're going to the gym, mm-hmm. you're, you're bodybuilding. You want to build your delts, you're bodybuilding. Right. Even if you don't want to compete, you're, you're building your body. You're, we're all bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. Like they do, they are the best in the world at what they do. And we still need to apply those same principles. Going to a calorie surplus, putting muscle on, you know, weight training, allowing recover, progressive overload, and doing that over time. And then when you reach how much muscle you want to have, you know, you do it, go into a calorie deficit and you do a cut. There, you know, there's there's different categories. So you've got bikini models, fitness models, there's physique, um, and then there's bodybuilding. Oh, and I think the men's have like classic physique and open. I think that's it. So there's different mm-hmm. categories for different federations and slightly different looks. Um, obviously, there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to building your physique. Um, but I really adopted a lot of the really heavy, heavy kind of powerlifting style um, training methods mixed in with bodybuilding because we need volume as well. Um, they, they tend to call it power building. And that's, that's how I've built my body. Now, there are plenty of people out there who don't want to lift heavy, and that's cool. They're going to use more of a volume um, approach to building their physique. But uh, like I said, I feel very empowered when I use strength training because um, I, I want to be driven by performance. My physique will come. Um, but not everyone's like that. So in terms of like, I love, like we're all bodybuilders, the way we do it. Well, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat, whatever method you want to do, which one, whichever one you want to enjoy, um, is the one that you're going to do long-term. So yeah, hope that answers your question. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So the moment of truth, when it comes to sort of competing at that level and having success, how much is determined by your hard work and application and diet and all those things? And how much of it is genetics? Can someone who has subpar genetics or average genetics reach those sort of levels? Or is there a physical limitation there based on what your parents give you? I think there's been a lot of talk about this. And there's actually some um, measurements that you can do to understand your genetic potential. Hmm. Um, I actually did it and it was like elite <laughs> so and what I was like, you, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> what's the test? What do yes, you have to do? Genetically, yes, elite. Yeah. Um, there's certain measurements around your neck. I think it's bicep, forearm, calf. Mm. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, you've got to do like some measurements. Um, whether it's completely true, I don't know. It got me right. But um, <laughs> look, genetics, I feel, plays a pretty big role. Like your insertion points, your anatomy. Um, some people are are predisposed to gaining muscle quicker than others. That's also true. Um, there are some people, yeah, that luckily get there quicker than others. And there are some people, if that's what you really want to do, you want to become a professional bodybuilder, then you have to be willing to put in the time and effort and that might require more effort than others. Um, but then, you know, I feel there are some people that just genetically, they're not, they're not meant to be a bodybuilder. Like if you want to be the top bodybuilder in the world, yeah, genetics play a big role. And if you pair genetics with good, a good steroid cycle, which I don't recommend that you do, do it natural. But this is what, this is what, if you look at the top bodybuilders in the world, none of them are natural. Yeah. So you're getting really good genetics, good work ethic, strong work ethic, with passion, with discipline, with focus, and, and a good and some, uh, steroid cycle. Yeah. You're getting a fucking, you're getting, like a pretty damn good physique there. So, um, you know, you are playing with fire when it comes to, to steroids. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been a topic of conversation that I have with, with friends a lot. Um, 
I think it's such a taboo topic as well. A lot of people are doing it and doing it really not in a good way, like unhealthy, not through doctors, not with like scientific advice, but from their friends because no one wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to put it under the rug. Yeah. Um, and that's really detrimental to someone's health. It's always intrigued me. I mean, but, uh, it, it's completely alien to me. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest trainer, although David did um, sort of stimulate <laughs> me and I've started training maybe in January and it's been really good. Yeah. But the whole yes! kind of weird <laughs> cycle of, of steroids and, and, yeah. and that kind of stuff, where do people get this stuff from? And, you know, just as a disclaimer, we're definitely not promoting this no. uh, to do, but I just, no. I've just never understood it. <laughs> I mean, I mean I'm, I'm happy to even, I mean, I'm on TRT at the moment. I go and see a doctor. Uh, it's prescribed to me. I get my blood work done every three months. I'm on very low doses just to try and bring me back to what I was, was when I was in my twenties, maybe a bit, a bit more than that. But, um, yeah. it's, yeah, it is taboo, but then people have no issues going out on the weekend and doing cocaine and, and all sorts of things, you know, mm. it's sort of, you know, people, it is this taboo because probably people don't understand and like everything in life, you, you can abuse things. And if you, you know, like, yeah, I mean, if you, if you've got a hammer, you can, you can, if you've got a hammer, you can hit hit a, hit a nail with it, or you can hit yourself in the dick. You know, like there's there's different there's different things that you can do. It's understanding how, how to Not use the, the second t- one, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just about doing it in, in an intelligent way. But yeah, I think I think you're right. It, it is a taboo topic. It it does sort of scare a lot mm. of people, and unfortunately, there is the negative connotations there when it comes to bodybuilding. Is that that dark side of mm. it? And you hear, you know, every so often you hear about you know young fit people just dropping dead of a heart attack or getting sort of you know all sorts of yeah, health issues that can that can arise from that. Can you just elaborate what is TRT for the listeners? Uh, so testosterone replacement therapy. Okay. So you know, yeah. as we age, and you know, Hattie can sport, uh, talk to this probably much better than I can. But you know, your hormones start to decline as you sort of get in sort of in you know thirties and forties. Those things start to start to change, and then it's about well, you know, how do I regulate that in in a healthy way so I'm not compromising my health, but still trying to get the most out of your body. Would that be accurate, Hattie, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about that side of things. Um, but I was, yeah, I was talking to a friend about that actually the other day because the thing is that some people after they've, let's say they've done a cycle, um, their testosterone may never return to what it was before they started. And they may have to do um, TRT, th- testosterone therapy, replacement therapy. Yeah. But again, you're not going to know unless you're getting your blood done. And you're not yeah. going to know unless you're doing it in a, in a healthy and safe um, and measured manner. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's just so one much misinformation or, or lack of education or even just it's such a taboo topic, um, even for females. Um, you know, you hear females taking doses that men are taking. Yeah. And, um, you know, someone who's really interesting, his name's Victor Black. He puts a lot of really great information out there. And, um, and it's just I think people think they have to, in order to look, like I get accused all the time. Uh, I used to take it as a compliment. Now I take it as an insult because I, I think you have no idea how hard I've worked and for how long I've worked. Hmm. Um, but again, I just think, well, it's the miseducation and it's people that are not willing to do what needs to be done to, to, to build their physique naturally. But also genetically, I've got great genetics. That is the truth. Yeah. Like I was an elite gymnast for nine years. I've trained my whole life. My foundation is I've got a bloody strong foundation. So, you know, and people start training old, like late, which is great, but they want what someone else had who's been training for 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's also because on social media, we only see as someone is now, not where they were. We also don't know what their full and true journey was to get them from A to B. 
they could have taken a cycle to get here, but they're not sharing it. Yeah, I know so it's different. It's exactly sell the the dream without telling them what's involved. Yeah. It's exactly the same as injectable patients. People want to go from A to B on the same visit and yet they don't understand the process. So yeah. you know, it's the same for all of us. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you maintain like relationships with your friends, like with a partner? Because, you know, even at the level that you're at now, there's a lot of discipline. I'm sure that you have to say no to a lot of things and, you know, maybe slightly inflexible with like foods and timelines. So how do you for someone that holds their their physique and at such a high level, how do you how do you go about maintaining that with with friends and partners, or partner? I'm not inferring anything. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm killing it. No. <laughs> One's enough. One's yes. enough. God, um, I don't think I've got time for two. Yeah. Um, it's been something that I've worked on over time. I love saying we're never in balance. We're always balancing, and it's been hard to balance all of these moving parts, you know, between work, friendships, relationships. And, you know, I I was in a relationship for nine years and it was, thank God my partner at that time was an elite athlete himself. So he knew he was super supportive, actually really lucky, very supportive of um, my dreams and aspirations and saw that, Hey, I could do something great with this. Um, So, and he understood. So that was really helpful. I think if you had a partner, if I had a partner that didn't understand it would be really difficult um you know even um yeah it's my friends again they're super supportive I'm really lucky supportive family supportive partner or partners um supportive friendship groups and they they're kind of just like okay like don't really understand um but just supported me and, and it's funny because I like I always say December December, January, no, November, December, January is my time to shine. So what I mean by that is like, that's where I can (laughs) take a foot off the the, summer, my birthday, New Year's Eve, Christmas. I can take my foot off the break a little bit, um, have a little bit more flexibility in terms of like, yeah, I can go out and be social. My training won't be as demanding. I give myself a little, like an extra rest day and I get to be with my friends. I get to play come mid January when uh, it's time to get ready for a show in such and such time, my friends have had their, their dose. They're, they're happy. They're ready. Um, I've been more balanced, more flexible, and they understand that this is my career. This is my job and they love seeing me thrive. But I've also noticed as I've gotten older, um, in particular, as of late, I've really made a point to have more friendship calls, especially with COVID. So I, I tend to FaceTime my friends rather just call them on the phone so I can see their face and just being more aware, obviously, as we get older, of where I'm spending my time, who haven't I connected with in a long time, um, you know, how much time I put into nurturing a relationship um, and trying not to be too selfish because it's such a selfish sport, <laughs> really. Yeah. And then also not being too married to my work <laughs> as well. I wanted to ask, um, you said you you train from sort of day naught almost and, and this has kind of been your life. So do you think that your average person who, who who doesn't have that, can they get to your level or were you just super lucky? You had the genes, you had the family driving you, you started early, you had the physique early and it all just sort of fell into place or can someone pick this up in their teens and, and later? You can pick this up in your teens. You can pick this up in later in life. I've had women that have started competing at the age of 54. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, one of my best friends, she's 50 
and she looks better than both eight, most eighteen year olds. And she didn't re- like, and she like just she she just is incredible. And and her mum actually started training a couple of years ago, and she's seventy, and she just looks she's wow. just completely transformed. And she's not going to be a fitness model, but you can. There's there's now forty. 40 plus category there's a 30 plus category there's opens there is there's i know in the men's there's like 50 plus men's division bodybuilding there's men getting in there like at an older age obviously we have muscle maturity the longer you've been trained the better you might be someone that you know it's crazy when you see someone that's been unhealthy and maybe overweight or even underweight for a period of time and then they start training and they're just like dang their physique is crazy and like oh my god you've been wasting that genetic potential for so long Mm. Um, yeah, Jake. <laughs> you ha- but you, you, have to, you have to love it. Well, you know, you, you really like anything, like anything that anything that requires you to be elite, elite, a master. It requires passion, obsession. Yeah, yeah I agree. Sacrifice. You have to. Know, you have to know your why. And um, you know, I think that fitness modeling, and I say this to my girls all the time, it's this beautiful, shiny thing. You see the girls on stage, and they're freaking beautiful. You see the men on stage, and they're oh my God, incredible physiques. But you have to know why you're doing it. Otherwise, it's either going to be a phenomenal transformation and a transformation internally and externally, or it's going to be a breakdown in your relationship with your normal self that you would never be able to get back. There are girls that have done shows and gone, I wish I never did that because I'm never going to be able to unsee myself or be good enough without being that physique. Mm. And so... Fitness modeling or bodybuilding, it should complement the relationship that you have with yourself, not build it or break it or make it, sorry. So anything that requires food, I think, in relationship with self, in relationship with food and body image stuff, I think you have to really love yourself before you go down that path and not use that as a way to love yourself. It shouldn't fill a hole that needs to be filled before you even start. Yeah, for for the average person listening, who you know, who sort of trains a bit, but you know, they're they're nowhere near your level. How do you get them into a better mindset so their um, motivation is better, so their habits are better, so they don't fall off the bandwagon every Saturday and Sunday and eat kebabs and <laughs> you know, binge drinking and having the odd sneaky <laughs> fag, whatever. Like, I I think that most people struggle with the consistency and and the mindset. It's not that they can't do it. You just said you know, if you've got you know, a bit of a framework, you could probably build that. But most people just mm. can't be bothered. I don't, I, you know, I don't know how to ask that mm. question better, but you must see people who you train all the time in a similar position. Something I always get asked is, how do I stay motivated in my fitness and health goals? Mm. And, you know, I think humans are so used to being all or nothing. So when you're all in, it's great. But when you're nothing, it's terrible. And we make the mistake of thinking that we have to change everything at once in order to change. But the truth is, if we do one small change, one thing at a time, and we can do that consistently over time, if we think about our effort, it compounds over time, right? Consistency compounds over time. Mm-hmm. So I like to think about creating stretch goals with my clients. So let's say you haven't been going to the gym at all. You've been to the gym in your life. Well, to go and just be going, you know, I'm going to go seven days a week. That's going to be great while you're motivated. <laughs> so when you're not motivated, right, that's, that happens. That's going to go from all to nothing because you've relied so heavily on motivation. What we love about motivation is we use that as a tool to create some sort of action, but to maybe look at that action being something that you can 
just do a little bit of over time. So we've got seven days a week, maybe going from zero to three days a week. Whatever days that you want to go, it doesn't have to be the same every day. You can change it, but you pick three, three days a week that you go to the gym or you go for a walk, even starting with that if you do nothing at all, and you tick that off. Yet this month, out of the four weeks of the month, I did three days going to the gym. Mm-hmm. Now, do I feel pretty good? Yeah, I feel pretty good. Do I have capacity to do one extra day? You know what? This month I'm going to try doing four. And that might be your bare minimum of, that's, of what's required that's going to keep you healthy or in your fitness, mm-hmm. towards your fitness goals. It might mean that um, instead of you know overhauling your whole diet and going, I'm going to cut out, what's, what's the normal ones? Wheat, sugar, <laughs> dairy those three that I have in my diet every single day. Um, uh, they say, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to swap my, I'm going to have, instead of having a Coca-Cola at my lunch, I'm going to have a glass of water. Mm-hmm. And Monday to Friday, that might be the only thing that you change. Let's just use that as an example. Saturday, Sunday, you allow yourself to have a Coke. And then you do that for a month. You go, you know what? I could do that really easy. I'm going to change the next thing. And so you layer or you build upon habits rather than going, I'm just going to change everything at once. Cause yeah, that will be great when you're motivated, but we want to look at long-term. Yeah. What's the point of suffering for 10 weeks when you're going to put all of that back on plus some and feel pretty shit about yourself. Then going, why don't we do a step through process? You know what? We layer this process. So I always like to, I also like to look at things as, you know, my process that I do every day is acts of self-love. That can be hard when you feel like you don't love yourself, when you're not deserving or worthy. But the thing is, if you have those beliefs that you're not deserving and worthy, what's going to happen to your actions? They feed not worthy and not deserving. So you're in a bit of a hamster wheel there. What if you were worthy and deserving? What would that person do to themselves? If you were worthy and deserving, how would you treat yourself? Okay, let's employ, let's employ those, that process or those habits. And over that time, we're going to learn to be worthy and deserving because you are. <laughs> and you build upon using the, that as a foundation rather than I'm going to go to the gym because I hate myself and I'm punishing myself. Mm. You know, the thing about pain is it's an amazing motivator. It motivated me in the, in the beginning, but it's not going to be the motivator forever. In fact, it Become, it will become your greatest limitation. So it starts things. So we rely on self-bullying, the act to compare, because what does it do? Helps us create adrenaline to go to the gym, to go for a walk, to not eat. Great, we use that as a great tool for now, but eventually adrenaline, what goes up has to come down. Yeah. And so when you're talking from the down, a hypo state, self-bully, what does that do? Just creates hypo, a hypo state. So collapse and maybe attach to someone and that doesn't make you do anything. So as you, as you start up your actions or your process, look at moving towards things like, yeah, self-love because the relationship that you have with yourself is going to set the tone for every relationship that you have. Plus it's going to set the language that you use, the stories that you tell, how you perceive life, how you receive messages, how you receive love right, from others as well, it sets the tone for everything. So while you're on this process of rebuilding habits and behaviours, look at rebuilding your relationship with self. Mm-hmm. And it's a process, right? 
good yeah. time as well. Yeah. Just like our relationships with our partners. We you fight with your partner, you have arguments, but then you have a repair system. We're gonna have the same thing as ourselves. We're gonna fight with ourselves. We've probably mistrusted ourselves many times, right? And that's scary to trust ourselves that we can follow through with something. Yeah, let's let's try something a little bit different. So that's probably my my best advice when it comes to how to stay motivated. It's like let's use motivation as a way of creating action. But let's do the minimum effective dose first and let's do that consistently over time and then we're going to build from that. No, that's great advice, Hattie. Thank you. You touched on diet um, just before and we've, we've sort of briefly uh, spoken about it during this chat. There are so many diets these days, whether they be carnivore diet, vegan, pro-metabolic, gluten-free. I mean, I don't know, there's probably a hundred more that I can't even think of off the top of my head. How do you approach diet? Do you think that different diets work different for work better or worse for different people? And then how do you, how do you know which one's right for you? I don't think I've heard of the pro-metabolic diet, so I've just learned something from you. There you go. You know, it's it's funny. I, I laugh about this and I had a uh, a chat with a friend over the weekend about I understand why everyone's so confused because there's so much conflicting information out there. Mm-hmm. But the truth is everything works till it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is everything works if the human is doing it. I like to think of principles and principles can be used to any methodology. So if we look at weight loss, let's say fat loss, that's better because it's not just about weight, it's about quality fat loss. Well, we know that we have to be in a calorie deficit, so giving our body less than what our body needs. But we also need for for adequate fat loss, a certain amount of protein, a minimum effective dose of protein to allow the body to preserve its lean muscle tissue so that your body can use preferentially use fat as fuel later on. When you know the the principle of I need to be in a calorie deficit and I have to have a minimum of effective dose of of protein, well, whatever way or methodology or preferred way of eating that you want to do, which is going to give you the result that you want, and also if you want to look at what's sustainable for you, then you can apply that to the carnival diet or vegetarian or vegan or pro... Metabolic. What was it? (laughs) Pro-metabolic, yeah. It's, you know, my my idea of, of... the perfect diet is including all food groups. Right. That's what I feel is a perfect diet in balance, in moderation, soul food and whole food. Now, obviously if you have um, food intolerances or you're chronically ill, yeah, you have different rules that apply to most people that are genuinely healthy or want to improve their health. As soon as you start cutting out certain foods, that is when I feel that it's unhealthy because you're putting restriction or often labeling things unhealthy. A little bit of sugar is not going to kill you. Like when people poo-poo certain foods, I, I want to question why and then how that makes you feel. Just because someone can't eat something doesn't mean it's bad. It's bad. There are some people, yeah, if you've got an unhealthy gut, maybe fructose for you at that time while your gut needs to be repaired may not be healthy for you, mm-hmm. absolutely. But it's not. that doesn't mean that fruit is bad and it doesn't mean that fruit's going to be bad for, for, bad for you forever. It's just that if you're, it's all about the gut. It's actually all about the gut. So one, getting blood tests re- frequently, I think everyone should do to how, just know how frequently, where you're at. Sorry to cut you off. How frequently are you talking? Once every six months. Okay. At least once a year, but once every six months. 
And when you say blood, um, blood test, do you mean with just a GP or a functional doctor, a nutritionist? Like, and, and what are you looking for exactly? Because it gets a bit confusing mm-hmm. and expensive, to be honest, as well. <laughs> yeah, I personally um, work with specialists that um, uh, essentially, um, not just nutritionists, but they do a lot of blood work and they're looking at what is the optimal blood work to do, not are you healthy against unhealthy patients, which mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. that GPs may do. Yeah, exactly. So, and what you're looking for, I'm looking always looking at my estrogen, testosterone, um, uh, free testosterone, um, res- uh, faster tri- triglycerides, glucose, um, B vitamins, iron, calcium, that those kind of things. Okay, so yeah. it's like hormones and, and micronutrients. Hormones and, yeah. Yeah. Vitamin yeah. D levels. Yeah, you yeah. you raised a good point because I think, as you said, like a lot of doctors traditionally look at you within the populace and say, "Do you fit within the healthy range?" Where you might mm-hmm. be looking to optimize, and you're looking to potentially identify issues now before they manifest into something much more serious later. So it's mm-hmm. looking at your diet from potentially a proactive perspective rather than reactionary. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's the thing: like, food is medicine, but we have to look at the quality of our food. Yeah. Absolutely. The thing about the quality of our food, if you want to have good quality food, it's expensive. Yeah. And this is the shitty part. You know, there's some people that just can't qu- afford really good quality food. Yeah. And that totally sucks. Yeah. But, you know, but they'll go and spend, you know, a few hundred dollars, you know, on a pair of shoes or on a night out or on a holiday. And it's not just it's not just money, Hattie. It's time too. People saying things like, oh, I don't have time to prepare my food. Well, what else is more important than that? You know, watching maths. Okay, I, I don't know. You, <laughs> you know what's what's more important? You know, watching TV and Netflix, or spending half an hour like with your partner. You know, making food together, understanding what you're putting in your body, what oils are in there, um, and so on. It's mm. like, well, if you put shit in, yeah. you're going to get shit out, and it's it, it it blows my mind that people have generally have such little regard and such little priority over what they're feeding their their body with. I love that you touched on that because. Something I always say is we only have time and money for things we prioritize. Mm-hmm. So your health better be one of them. And you know what? If you want to go and spend your money, spend money on those jeans, work for it. Like make it something that you build towards by saving money over here and spending money over there with your organic food and looking after yourself and feeling good and going, yeah, I'm desert- I can't wait to put those pants on. I feel good. I've worked really hard for this. Rather than rewarding because we tend to reward ourselves as food well I used to anyway but I'm not a dog so I shouldn't do that <laughs> that's why I was like well I'm not a dog I should reward myself food um so starting to reward yourself with maybe good well you're buying organic food or going to the to the butchers and um supporting local farmers mm-hmm. you know, I love going to, like I said go, go get your partner and the kids go to the farmers markets on Saturday morning and really get to support local farmers that are that are doing all the pickings and and um you know doing it on their own and seeing what fresh produce looks like and it's just a beautiful i mean it's just a beautiful family thing to do and something that i also teach my girls is you know we're worshiping ourselves in a way when we put time aside to prep meals that are healthy even from the fruit that you pick going to the markets like these are acts of self-love like you're feeding yourself with nutrients that that you are deserving of and even looking at food prep food prep is not just for bodybuilders food prep is for anyone that wants to look after themselves 
even if I didn't compete, I'd still do all the same things that I do right now regardless because what are they? They're acts of self-love. I love myself enough to look after myself. Yes, I love eating out but in small doses. Yeah. In fact, I enjoy eating out more when I haven't done it in a long time. <clears throat> and you, you eat less. You don't stuff yourself and just be like, Ugh. like it's, you know, there's, there's so much more <laughs> consciousness I think that happens yeah. when you really start to tune into how do I look after myself? Do I really want to roll out of the restaurant feeling sick? Not really. Yeah. Like I'm going to enjoy the food, but I'm going to stop when I'm full. That's something that I had to practice to do. Um, <laughs> also looking at like putting time aside in your week to prep your meals and knowing that it's there and you're eating delicious food and you're cooking for your loved ones, you're cooking for yourself because you love them, you're teaching your kids, you know, about really good quality nutrition. They get good quality nutrition instead of just giving them whatever to shut them up. That's also yeah. like, you know. The KFC bucket, yeah. <laughs> It's totally exactly. true uh, what you said about um, sort of, you know, spacing it out. Like before lockdown and before things are t- taken away from us, I, you know, me and my wife got bored of sort of going out for a, a restaurant um, meal because it, we just did it all the time and it didn't feel special. We kind of did the yeah. same old, same old. And you kind of think like, ugh, like this is just too much. Whereas now, you know, especially in the lockdown, I'm going to really appreciate that just simply nice cooked meal in a nice restaurant and value that time with, with friends and family and stuff. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good point that you made. And also taking your kids to the farmer market. I mean, you know, educate your children about cooking and fresh produce and what are vegetables and the different types of vegetables that you might normally consume, you know, normally. So it's about building mm. those healthy habits for your kids as well. I was like supporting seasonal produce as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People wanting things out of season and, and, and sort of, you know, they don't taste as good or they might not, you know, have to carry the same nutritional value. It's just, yeah, variety. And I think there's so much access now to information. I mean, you could just pull up your phone. I mean, we've got access to every piece of information since the dawn of time sitting in our back pockets and everyone's putting content up and recipes and ideas. And you've got people like Jamie Oliver floating around and, you know, it's just, it's, it's accessible. You just have to want to do it. Yeah. I wanted to ask Hattie, what do you, what's an average day? What do you eat? Tell us what's brekkie, what's lunch, what's dinner <laughs> and what are your snacks and what do you supplement with? Oh, supplements. Okay, okay. That's a good one. Yeah. I love talking about food. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love eating. Um, what well, the moment, so I'm, I'm, cu- I'm currently getting ready for the WBFF show here in Australia and Gold Coast. So I'm in my dieting phase. So, um, I'll tell you my macros, a, a protein is 150 grams of protein per day. And that's not just whey protein. That's, yeah. um, Real protein. <laughs> it's, uh, it's real protein. Yeah, it's real protein. Um, 250 grams of carbohydrates. I hit about 40 grams of fiber mm-hmm. outside of that. So altogether, if I'm looking at total amounts, about 290 grams of carbs. And then there's uh, my fats, which is about 50 grams. So my morning breakfast um, is one whole egg with 150 grams of egg whites. I can tell you probably all the weights because I weigh everything every day. 30 grams of low-fat cream cheese and a 120 grams of sourdough. I have two breakfasts, so I'll have like one savory. It's <laughs> because the best meal of the day. Yeah. Breakfast is the best. <laughs> breakfast is the only meal I don't really like eating out because I'm like, I'm gonna, yeah. I can make all of that at home. Yeah. Plus, everything's so full of fat that I'm like, oh, it's gonna take up my fats for the day. So, I have like my savory zucchini and uh, 50 grams of rocket. So I always have to have something. I have to have vegetables pretty much at every meal. Mm-hmm. I also have. I'll have a. I'll have two coffees. <laughs> I love coffee. Mm-hmm. I'll have two coffees, both with um, sugar and full cream milk in them. Um, 
Then I have some honey and toast on the side. That's after my, my savory part. Then I'll train. And then after that, I'll have 200 grams of basmati rice, about 150 grams of beetroot, 150 grams of carrots, um, 100 grams of either sardines or um, lean beef mince or chicken. That, yep. that changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and eat seafood every second day if I can. Yep. And then mid-afternoon, I will have um, about 130 grams of an apple, 150 grams, oh, about 75 grams of raspberries, 75 grams of blueberries, um, s- some yogurt with protein in it. And then I'll also have about 25 grams of chocolate in that snack as well. And then at <laughs> night, I tend to have um, a different kind of meat, whether it will be like if I had sardines at lunch, I'll probably have chicken or something at dinner. Yep. Or I try and mix up, like I have, try and have different proteins, different from like lunch and dinner, yep. around 100 to 150 grams, depending on what I had at, at lunch. And then again, it'll be like a really high fiber, moderate to low fat, high protein kind of meal, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's it for the day. That sounds so like around. I try and get like seven to nine different, seven to nine different veggies in over yeah. the day. That's quite. That's still quite a lot of calories for a girl your weight. That sounds like I could be wrong. I'm guessing somewhere around two, three, two, four thousand, two, two thousand three hundred, two thousand four hundred calories a day. Is that kind of close? Uh, no, it's around. It's actually around. If I include all my fiber in there, it's it's around two thousand two thousand one hundred okay. just over. Okay. But in my building season, I was above three thousand calories, so wow. I was six, sitting at about sixty four kilos. So I had a goal to get five hundred grams of carbs in. Yep. Um as a goal, which, you know, something I'd been working on actually for a long time, I'd hit 400 grams of carbs and I was like, you know what, I want to take this to another level. Um, and that was, that was actually really interesting. Cause I was like, I wanted this goal, but I noticed I was quite scared to, to go yeah. higher than what I'd done before. So, uh, yeah, that was, um, that was a cool goal to hit. And I, de- it definitely was tough getting, yeah. I just, just, I was just distended all day. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I felt so heavy. Yeah, a lot of carrying so a lot it of water, felt nice huh? to feel. It felt nice to feel hungry and small. Yeah, yeah. I don't want there to be too much assumed knowledge because you guys train and you're really into it. But for the people listening, they might be surprised that you're you're eating a lot of carb and you're mm-hmm. you're allowing yourself to have sugar and honey yes. and a bit of chocolate. Like, is that mm-hmm. because you're training so much that you need the energy, or or is it because you're giving yourself you know a little bit of a cheat so it's you know an achievable mm-hmm. diet, or or is it a bit a bit a mix of both? Did you say cheat? Yeah, like as in like you're allowing yourself to have something nice every day or, or is it just you know because you cheating? need th- well okay people will call it cheating a cheat meal saying, a cheat snack yeah, yeah. people will yeah. call you know because they do exactly what you said they'll cut it out they'll they'll go mm. this extreme diet no fat no chocolate no nothing mm. and then they get fed up of it so mm. it's not cheating but they will call it cheating yeah and, I, and i'm glad we're actually talking about this because i'm i track my food so i track my food using i, I, I weigh my food and I add it into an app. So we've got amazing apps that, that have pretty much all the food yeah. um, data entries that we can have. And this is how we can start to track our energy in, essentially coming in. It's harder to track energy coming out because we're a machine and everyone's, you know, it, everything's a guesstimate. But if you can track your food coming in, yeah. you can and track your weight and what's happening there, you can get a really good idea of well, what's keeping your weight stable, what's making you gain weight, and what's mm-hmm. making you lose weight. If everything's tracked. There's no cheating about it, you yeah. know. 
I'm not cheating anything. However, I like to look at food as whole foods. So whole foods in their truest form, your, your fruit, your veggies, your proteins, you know, and some carbohydrates, they come in the truest form. Not packaged, only one ingredient, whole food. Yep. And then we've got what's called soul food. <laughs> and that is generally food that has lower nutrient value, but it's delicious and it tastes good. So I love chocolate. Um, and as I was, you know, recovering from having a disordered eating behaviors and patterns, I realized there's got to be more to life than this. And how do I make it work? Which is why I started working with a coach and he was showing, Hey, you can get into sub 6% body fat as a body, a natural bodybuilder, tracking your food and eating all different types of food because the principles of energy in versus energy out, being a calorie deficit, yeah. keep your protein, Obviously, getting micronutrients coming in, but having a variety of different foods in, it doesn't have to be this inverted commas clean eating. Where clean eating became superior is like, yeah, foods in their in their truest form, they have a higher thermic effect of food. So we actually burn more energy to digest and break that food down because it's not processed. Yeah. Anything that's processed gets processed quicker. So yes, it was it, it was seen as more um, uh, essentially it was seen as um, superior to flexible dieting in a way, in the beginning, but actually what are we looking at long-term and people that were doing the inverted, inverted commas clean eating and then having a cheat day, they saw huge psychological effects in their behaviours, in disordered eating, in the lead-up and post those cheat meals or cheat days. Yeah. And at the end of the day, when you recorded all the calories that people were cheating on, they were essentially back doing or undoing half the work they'd done by clean eating during the week. So. For me, I was like, how do I have a sustainable approach to food and how do I see food as, as, as fuel? Because all food is fuel. When we eat it, it turns into energy. It's just that some foods come with more energy and some foods come with more not micronutrients, which are obviously beneficial for the gut and the body. So I like to look at my diet as 80% wholesome unprocessed foods, 20% soul food. So a part of my 20% soul food is allowing me to have some sugar in my coffee and allow myself to have 25 grams of chocolate, which I now when I eat, I'm like I save it every moment because I only get 25 <laughs> grams. I used to eat half a block of chocolate in like the space of one second and yeah. my partner at the time, I'll never forget it, was like, did you even chew that? <laughs> and I was like, not really. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, my God, because I would cut it out and then I would binge, cut it out, binge. And I was like, right, behaviors I'm executing are not healthy. How do I do this another way? Yeah. So I learned to do it another way. And it's really hard um, to teach people that, hey, you can have a little bit of that as long as we balance out what's coming here to do that because there is such an emotional attachment to food and we've often used food as an emotional regulator because it is an emotional regulator. Like it creates dopamine in the system. It makes us feel good. We can do it in private. Um, we so we do so many social engagement over it. We often see it as celebration, right? Reward system, but also something to keep you stable. And so it's really hard to kind of shift um, that relationship, but you can. And like I said, something that helped me was going, well, if food is energy, how much energy do I need to do this type of training? And the type of training that I do is glycolytic, so it requires glycogen. Mm -hmm. If I was just doing yoga, I wouldn't need as many carbohydrates. I'd still need carbs. Your brain needs about 150 grams of glucose to survive. What you don't get through carbohydrates, your body will make through protein and fat in the liver. 
gluconeogenesis. Unless you're in a, unless you're in a ketogenic state, obviously you're going to create ketones. But we're not, and women underestimate how much carbohydrates we carbohydrates we need purely for our menstrual cycle. So, of course, the more demanding your training is, even the more muscle you have, yeah, the carbohydrate tolerance that you have, it, you can push that. But we still need carbohydrates. They're not the enemy. Yeah. They're very good for us. And, again, I had to learn that. There's still some unbinding to do for a lot of people. Um, you know, if you want to do where, – where the ketogenic diet can be beneficial for, in particular, some women is around their cycle – when they have got incredibly high inflammation because it's anti-inflammatory. But I've got friends that will cycle on doing the ketogenic diet just for half of their, you know, half the month when they're in certain phases of their cycle just to manage inflammation because they're in so much pain. Mm. And then once it goes, they go back into eating carbohydrates normally. So they actually cycle on, on and off. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of long-term and if that's the only way you think you can get into shape, it's actually not. When you are doing keto and you're losing weight, it's because you're in a calorie deficit. Yeah. That's what, why you're losing weight. Yeah, right. Social media. It's, um, yep. it's the love-hate relationship that I, I think most of us have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> it's a necessary evil in, in 2021. And, and the last time I checked on your Instagram, you've got like 500 million followers or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. And 500 million? I wish. Something, something. <laughs> you got a lot, right? And um, – <laughs> How, how do you sort of um, deal with that? And what do you feel like your responsibility is for someone that probably a lot of women look up to? And we'll get onto your sports model project and all the things that you're doing um, very soon. But just in terms of how you sort of manage that, what sort of thought process do you go through when you're like posting things, giving advice? And what do mm. you think your respons- responsibilities are? And I hate using this word because it's just so I've used it as an influencer. I'm doing inverted commas for anyone that's just listening mm. to this. <laughs> it's actually a really great question. Um, and actually a topic of conversation as most, most recently, um, you know, someone reached out to me the other day and said, I'm so grateful my daughters follow you. And I have a, a, a really broad audience. I have got young, young girls, you know, I've met them at expos. They're like eight years old following me on social media. And then yeah. I've had women who have been 70 years old following me on social media, both being influenced or both being inspired and educated and guided by. And so I feel like I have a huge responsibility actually in the message that I have, the values that I have, the authenticity that I show, being raw, being real, being vulnerable, um, but even the education that I share. And it's a really big responsibility and I take, and I take it really seriously, um, which is why I don't share just for no reason. Um, I try, you know, I'm a, I'm a, it's funny, I'm like I'm a sexual person but not everything has to be sexualized. In fact, I'm a very sexual person, but I keep that in private. I don't have to, I don't want to gain followers from being sexualized. I mm. want to gain supporters from people who are actually going to get something from me of influence, of influence, be of influence, not just an influencer. I wouldn't even consider myself an influencer. I can consider myself of influence. I help people change the way they see themselves. I help people change the way they look at the world or even ask them certain questions and go, wow, is there a different way? Can I change my thought pattern? How do I stay motivated? All of those great things. Um, and so I feel that people with you know big social media accounts, you have a responsibility. There's someone that is watching and learning from you and getting knowledge from you. And so it is really important 
that what you share, make sure it's of integrity and and of value. And yeah, I think um, I feel I feel grateful. I feel incredibly grateful to be in the position that I am. I often feel pressure. Am I doing enough? Um, is what I'm saying. You know, you know, am I giving people what they need? Um, you know, what else can I do? Um, but yeah, cause I do have, yeah, I've got such a broad market of, of women. It's like, how do you speak to all those women? Well, I can't at different times. I'll speak to different, different people over, over like the messages. But, um, yeah, that's why I am yeah pretty conscious of the images that I share and also the messages that I share as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. I got a question. This is kind of a more of a personal question that I'm interested in. So you guys obviously have extremely low body fat, you're, you're training, you're, you're counting your calories, et cetera. So we all age and, and mm-hmm. we all want to look good. But when people have very, very low body fat, it can sometimes affect the face. And, and particularly, I'm guessing for women, it can make them look a little bit aged or a bit too gaunt or even maybe masculine in some way. So is that something that comes up in your discussions with friends or colleagues or you know do do they do injectables or um you know have you ever thought about that or is it you know you're only 32 so maybe you haven't encountered it yet yeah so gosh sometimes I look at my my uh photos and videos from when I'm like a few weeks out from competing and I look at my face and I think oh my god that looks scary right (laughs) because the face just everything goes you know and um I, I do my best to keep my face, but um, <laughs> there's been times where I've questioned it, but I haven't questioned it during. I've questioned it after when I've gone, oh, my God. Um, and it does, like, it does, you know, everything, the dieting, it affects your skin quality, you yeah. know, for sure. And um, I've used Botox before. Mm-hmm. But I I like to still be able to move my face. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I want to age gracefully but I want to look like myself. Yeah. I don't want to look like someone else. I don't want to have something done where I'm like, that doesn't look like me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just like, what is the, what's the minimum effective dose? Yeah. What's the minimum effective dose? And eventually, you know, like you said, I'm 32 and I ask myself, how much longer do I want to do this to? Cause it's going to affect the way I look later, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, especially at the extreme level, I get to, you know, 8% body fat, you know? And, I stay there for, you know, a couple of months plus the amount of training and intense exercise I do to get there. Like, and while I'm feeding my body nutrients, they're being eaten up very quickly, you know? So I actually find fish oil has been amazing for skin, skin quality, fish oil. Mm. I always keep a really good quality fish oil. And I find that when I'm dieting, it makes a huge difference on my skin. Like my skin quality still looks really nice. Okay. I'm lucky. I feel like my skin quality still looks really good. But it is something I, I really think about for sure. And it's, I mean, the fitness industry is full of yeah. lips and tucks and plastic and lips yeah. and eyelashes and hair extensions. Like I took my hair extensions out and I thought, oh my God, I'm missing a part of me. <laughs> and I, and I, I was like, oh my God, I relied on this thing, this external thing, hair, to feel sexy for a period of time. And I was like, okay, I wanted to put, it, put them straight back in. And I was like, no, you're going to feel that hole yourself. and when you do, and if you do want to put them back in, they're going to complement the fact that you already feel sexy. Yeah. And so, and I actually shared that on social media, I think in November last year, I was like, man, I feel like, I feel, you know, I was feeling unattractive. I was feeling like I wasn't sexy. And it's like, well, actually I generate my own sexiness. 
and it's just hair. Like what really is, let's just, it was my, I told myself this story so many times that I believed that I was only sexy with hair, with this big hair. It became part of my identity because I had it in there for so long. And then I took it out and I was like, oh my God, my identity, my big mane. Yeah. I, I call myself a lioness. And I was like, well, I'm still a lioness. I'm still that, that person. I just have to, ch- I have to, yeah. you know, work through this thing that I've relied on for so long. And I think the thing about what is available to us whenever we want is to change something at that time, to go get an injection, to go get breast implants, to go put hair in, to go get your nails done, to go get your eyelashes without sitting and going, why do I feel so uncomfortable? And actually, is that, is that really true? How can I generate actually feeling sexy or beautiful, whatever it is, in my own way yeah i'll just say i'm being very self-conscious here talking about hair extensions if you're if you're I'm a lot your faces i'm going oh my god what am i saying am I <laughs> not only that we were well not joking we were kind of serious that david was saying his botox has worn off and you know we can't do anything in our lockdown at the moment so it's kind of yeah lo- oh you look great it does if, look good. if you're if you're a lioness i'm a seal pup so um <laughs> Talk to us about the sports model project. So you've you've alluded to it um, numerous times. So what is it that you do? How do you help women? What's what's it all about? So the sports model project, my mission with the sports model project is to create a world of resourceful women powerfully supporting one another. And why that's my mission is because women can be so fiercely independent, so strong, so powerful, but we are even more powerful as a community. And sisterhood, something that I think most women may never even really get to experience, true sisterhood, being a part of something, being being on your own journey, but with other women together, being supported, being heard, being seen, working on the inside, working on the external. SMP is essentially my self-development, but in a business. (laughs) So. I had to wrestle with eating disorder, not being enough, being isolated, being bullied, being all these things. And I'm like, when I, w- when I first started competing, there was no support around me. But when I was a gymnast, what was interesting is like I trained with my, my friends, my best friend. My best friend was my, also my competitor. I had to compete against her. But we trained together. And, you know, while we look at gymnastics as an individual sport, it's a team sport all the individual individual scores add up and that becomes the best team. And I thought, how do I create that in a business? Mm-hmm. How do I create support that I didn't feel like I had at that time? How do I create that? And how do I turn it into something that's incredibly powerful? And that's how I developed the Sports Water Project. It's based on the same principles I had when I was training um, with my elite sports team, except that not all the girls are elite athletes. Some girls are in there. You know, transformation is whatever transformation is for you. For some girls, it's a, like it's wearing shorts for the first time in the gym. For some girls, it is getting on stage. For some girls, it's getting a bikini for the first time. For a lot of the girls, it is finding themselves again because they've been a mum, because they've been a CEO, because they've been a sister or a wife, and they have no idea what they are outside of those identities. And they're like, what else do I have? I want to find who I am. And I also want to develop a good relationship with myself because I have kids and I don't want them to experience what I experienced with myself. I don't want them to grow up the way I have. And I love working with mothers, mm-hmm. love working with mothers because they have such an important role in this world. I was so lucky my mum has been an amazing role model to me, but I can know, I can watch, I know what her eating habits were. 
You know, I know when she started exercising and that's the same with kids. They hear and they see everything. And if we want to create a world of resources, women powerful supporting one another, we also want to create powerful mothers who are going to educate their kids in the right way by, by leading by example, you know, and some of them are learning to love themselves at the age of 50 or 40. Mm. I mean, one of my clients said to me not long ago, she goes, I feel like I'm living for the first time. Wow. That's awesome. 40 years old. I can't remember. And I'm like, mm. Yeah, I can't, Someone came up with the, uh, the phrase, it was like, we've never been more connected because of social media, yet we've never been more alone because mm. we're just sat in our rooms on our phone and we're not really mm. connected and some people feel very lonely and I think what you've done is amazing. So how, how does it work? Like what, 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 how are you connecting and, and, and what happens? So it's, it's all online coaching. So I have a community. Um, in, we actually use Mighty Networks now and I've got an incredible team of coaches now, um, that help me facilitate all of the, the coaching with the girls. Cause we've got about 200 and about 280 girls altogether. So obviously I can't do all of that. Mm-hmm. It is still, um, personalized coaching. Um, and we do a lot of group calls. So, you know, we learn so much more about ourselves when we listen to others while you have your experience, I have my experience, we often have similar experiences, but we're just doing it on our own. And so we learn so much more when we listen to someone else. And we can also, we're always trying to, we're always trying to connect, right? We're always trying to resonate. We're always looking at who we can, how we can resonate with someone, how, how we can create safety and connection. And that's what I create in SMP. So in order for people to apply, there's a, there's a consult call because we need to make sure, hey, they're the right person for this community. Because if we're a community, it means that everyone talks, everyone's connected. We want to make sure it's safe. Um, but we also want to make sure we can help that person. There are some people that, you know, think they want coaching, but what they need is psycho- a psychologist mm-hmm. yeah. or they need a trauma specialist. But they often reach out to food or training as a way of dealing with trauma and stress. Yeah. But actually, that's not the right thing for them. So we need to make sure as we are a community that we've got the right people in the community because then we can create, keep everyone safe. Um, I work on nutrition of course, training, of course, mindset behaviors. I have a meditation coach who comes and does online meditation with the girls. He's also got a meditate. We've got a meditation course in there. We've also got a neuropsych who's been working in the background with us. We've created a course for the girls It's called a mindset course so that they can start to learn about their very own nervous system and make, start to make sense of things. Um, and we've just got an incredible skill set of amazing coaches who just do the most phenomenal job with assisting the girls' transformations over six months. So it's a six-month period because if I'm looking at helping someone change their habits and behaviours and their relationship with self, well, that's not six weeks, that's not eight weeks, that's not, that's not 12 weeks. That's not even really six months. But that's just a scratching of the surface. Mm-hmm. But that's how long we work with someone. Wow. Very comprehensive. Um, yeah before you tell us about how we get in touch with you and we sort of, we've got, we've been talking for an hour and a half. I feel like we could talk forever, Hattie. Um, I came across on your website, you have a product called Gut Health. Is this your product? If so, tell us, sorry, Gut Performance. Tell us, tell us all about it. Yeah. So Gut Performance is a hundred percent scientifically formed food. So it's a food, not a supplement. And it's an active broad spectrum prebiotic. So it's full of antioxidants and micronutrients and it's, it's all food. So it helps reduce inflammation, manage well, manage chronic inflammation, stress, which is then going to allow for recovery. So I actually started, I actually teamed up with um, a food scientist to develop this product because 
I wanted something that was going to, well, at the time I was quite sick. I got quite sick from Bali mm. and I didn't want to take, um, I didn't want to take anti antibiotics mm-hmm. and, um, he'd formulated a base product and he said, try this. And I, I tried it and I was like, can we, can we work on something that's going to be specific to athletes? Mm-hmm. He's like, we can. And so we came up with the formula because I was like, if I can recover better, I can train harder because all I care about is training harder. So um, we went away, did some trials, um, put different, I guess, micronutrients together and we were able to come up with gut performance. And um, it is essentially my daily non-essential. Um, so I, my, sorry, my daily essential. So I have it every single day. Um, it's always helped manage my inflammation and my gut. It actually helps to because um, it's such a it's a, such a strong prebiotic, it actually helps to increase the good bacteria in your gut and actually help die off the bad bacteria. So we've had incredible results with anyone that suffers from IBS, both constipation and, and diarrhea, um, women with endometriosis because the prebiotics helps manage the inflammation and also PCOS and also diabetes because if you take it with food, it actually lowers the, the um, insulin response of your food. Actually, uh, it takes, what's it? It lowers the GI of your food. Sorry. Right. So um, we've got some really incredible testimonials on our website, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go check them out, it's um, www.gutperformance.com. I got a question. What does it taste like? <laughs> we have two flavors. Uh, the original berry flavor, that used to be my favorite, but now um, the black currant is my favorite and it smells like um, black currant. Uh, what are they called? Black currant. We used to eat them as a child. They're not healthy at all. Um, <laughs> Ribena berry. I don't know what you're talking about. No, blackcurrant. Um, oh, the roll-ups? Roll-ups. Yeah. It smells like that. Right. And we, and we use, so what we've done is we've got the, all the blackcurrant skins yep. and we've ground them down. Oh. Jake so instead, to- of, instead of them throwing them out and just wasting them, <laughs> we took them and we took all the antioxidants out of um, from the – because it's all in the skin, right? Mm. So um, we've got the blackcurrant and the original berry flavor and – Look, the berry, the blackcurrant flavor has really been a hit. I won't right. lie, uh, but I, I can't, I can't favor. I like both. Yeah. Well, Jake says as soon as you get one that tastes like Negroni, that he's in. <laughs> Can I just spike your drink somewhere? <laughs> Do it. No, it sounds tasty. Put it in your smoothie. Yeah. No. I'll no. send you boys some. All right. All right. Thank very, you. Very, very good. Sounds good. Wow. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface, Hattie. Thank you so much for your time. I, we were supposed to do this in person, but then you were in Queensland and then COVID strangled us all and we're all, we're all locked in. But thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts and your knowledge. We really appreciate it. For anyone that would like to get in touch with you just to harass you on email or want to become a client <laughs> for the Sports Model Project or they want to buy um, uh, any of your products, how do they get in touch? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is if you don't want to talk to me, email me. Right. Yes. Yeah. I like that one early on. Yeah. Best way to contact me is um, for the Sports Water Project. Mm -hmm. I've got a direct um, website, www.sportswaterproject.com, or even the Instagram, which is the underscore sports model underscore project. Um, That's where you're going to get the quickest quickest response in terms of um, coming on board with and looking into the Sports Water Project. Um, Directly for me, it is uh, my Instagram is probably the easiest and that's just Hattie Boydle, one word. I should be the first person that comes up. Yep. A nice blue tick next to there. Yeah. Um, but feel free to reach out, of course. Um, love feedback from this podcast if anyone wants to you know, openly share. 
any feedbacks, good feedback. Um, but I really enjoyed the conversation today and I know it's been 90 minutes and I feel like I could talk forever. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks so much, guys. No, thank you, Hattie. And, you know, from my perspective, I really appreciate you opening up. It's, you know, it's a really interesting and um, I guess... Uh, raw topic for for some of our listeners potentially going through some of those issues so thank you for giving your insights and um hopefully helping some people maybe struggling and you know maybe they can reach out to you and and get some more advice privately yeah awesome thank you so much thank you so much for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on instagram at inside aesthetics podcast During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.